Welcome to the Church Times podcast. Try 10 issues for £10 or two months access to our website and apps also for £10. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash new hyphen reader. On the podcast this week, Justin Briley talks about his new book, The Surprising Rebirth of Belief in God, Why New Atheism Grew Old and Secular Thinkers Are Considering Christianity Again. Justin hosted the popular radio show and podcast Unbelievable for more than a decade and hosted debates featuring many of the so-called new atheists. But he believes that new atheism has fallen and is being replaced by a new conversation on whether God makes sense of science, history, culture and the search for meaning. The surprising rebirth of belief in God is published by Tyndale House and is available from the Church Times bookshop. So Justin Briley, welcome to the Church Times podcast. Thank you for having me on, Ed. Could we start talking about the new atheist movement? Perhaps just a little reminder of sort of the impact it had, who the principal protagonists yeah. were. Well, it did start nearly 20 years ago. So, it, it, you know, there might be some listeners for whom it wasn't really quite within their, you know, adult lifetime and so on. The new atheism was a newly sort of aggressive form of atheism that came to the fore in the mid 2000s, particularly through best-selling publications like The God Delusion by Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, God is Not Great, Sam Harris and Daniel Dennett. Those four, in fact, were labelled the four horsemen of new atheism. And it was just a much more dogmatic, anti-religious strain of atheism, but that really made a big splash in the media, had a very strong online element to it. A lot of people getting together in chat rooms, blogs, communities to kind of rail against religion and champion science and reason. And, you know, it, it even led to, and you may remember, Ed, in the UK, the atheist bus campaign, um, you know, lots of London buses rolling around emblazoned with there's probably no God. Now stop worrying and enjoy your life. Um, in the US, the probably the equivalent high watermark was the Reason Rally in 2012, when tens of thousands of sceptics descended on the US Capitol to you know, a march for reason and science and against religion. So this was a very sort of interesting moment in our culture when atheism and anti-religious sort of sentiment really reached a fever pitch in some ways. And uh, yeah, and so I begin the book really by talking about this phenomenon, the rise of it, but also the fall of it, because actually, to some extent, it, it sort of imploded almost as quickly as it as it sort of came to the fore. So it was it was an interesting moment, probably, you know, most the effects most felt between as I say the mid 2000s to the early 2010s I would say. Well we'll, we'll talk about the fall in a minute I was just also interested in the book you write that you were quite pleased with the atheist bus campaign because it got people talking about God so I mean absolutely Christians was this a good moment because indifference is often the issue isn't it and when you've got people who are virulently atheist at least there's a conversation to yeah. be had. Yeah. And the new atheism generally kind of at least gave a very solid kind of thing to engage with. I mean, I, it was a gift to me because I started my unbelievable show, bringing Christians and non-Christians together around the time that new atheism was building up ahead of steam. And it was a very kind of good way of, of engaging the issues because here were people asking these really, you know, specific questions about Christianity. And yeah, I, I thought the atheist bus campaign, I mean, if they were trying to get people to to stop thinking about God, it had precisely the opposite effect. Because as I say in the book, you know, uh, um, asking uh, the average British person to, to to 
you know, to to stop believing in God is a bit like asking a, a teenager to consider having a lion on a Saturday morning. It's like it hardly needs to be said. You know, we already yeah. live in this very secular culture. So in a way, just raising it, putting it in people's eyeline on buses actually raised the question of, oh, yeah, I never thought maybe there is a God. You know, so actually, um, and funnily enough, you know, quite apart from my own book, there's been just another recent book come out called Finding Faith Through Dawkins, uh, which is all about people's journeys to faith, ironically, because of Richard Dawkins sort of provoking these questions in their mind. So, um, so yeah, it, it, in a funny way, it did have a sort of, yeah, the, the opposite effect in some ways than, than what it had. That's not to say that new atheism, you know, didn't make converts to its side. It certainly did, I think. I think there were a lot of people who probably, you know, were ready to hear that message and, you know, decided actually, yes, I think religion's bad for us and I, you know, don't believe it anymore and so on. So, so, so it's sort of, obviously it was a mixed bag, but yeah, it was, it was an interesting moment when that campaign was, was doing the rounds. Mm. I suppose one of the um, aspects of the new atheism was it wasn't just saying religion's untrue, but also that religion is, is dangerous. Was that a new kind of opposition to religion compared to the sort of earlier in the 20th century sort of people like Bertrand Russell yeah, and Anthony I, Flew. I, th- I think I, I mean it's not that people hadn't said that religious thinking is bad for you in the past but it, it was said sort of far more strongly and perhaps with more clarity when the new atheists came into view so that was the the, the really strong message um that yeah essentially you know religion was blamed for most of the evils of the world you know if you read Christopher Hitchens book God is not great you know the subtitle is something like why religion poisons everything now I think that's a manifestly kind of obviously untrue slogan yet it was paraded you know by the new atheists you know there was this very almost simplistic I think naive kind of idea that somehow you could lay all the ills of the world at the foot of religion Um, and that was you know lapped up in many quarters I think because I think it was especially kind of coming hot on the heels of 9-11. And so there was this sense that, oh, yes, fundamentalist religion really, really does, you know, cause terrible things like this. It was, of course, as I say, far too simplistic, a kind of analysis of what was going on, even with something like 9-11. But um, but that was, yeah, that was very much the message at the time. And, and why, why did it start to un- unravel, as it, were, as it were? What were some of the factors? I think there were a variety of things, both external and internal to the new atheism. I mean, externally, I think it just started to be seen as a little bit of a um, shrill, dogmatic kind of movement in the end, almost quasi-religious in in a funny way, because you could say it had its own, you know, four horsemen who were the, the high priests. It, it had, you know, its sacred texts. It had its orthodoxy, scientific materialism. It had its heretics, people who were, you know, rounded upon if they, you know, went away from that. Um, and... And so I think it, it, some people just kind of got a bit tired of it. It felt like it was actually, you know, overstating its case and that kind of thing. I, I eventually had more people coming on my show who were atheists who distinguished themselves from the new atheism, you know, rather than sort of adhering to it. Um, so there was that going on. Uh, and ultimately, the fact that I think, you know, in the end, it didn't really answer people's ultimate questions around meaning, purpose and identity. It didn't sort of it pulled God down, but it didn't really erect anything in God's place to kind of make sense of life through. Um, but then internally, there was this whole interesting story, which I go into detail in the book about, which is uh, some to, to some extent, you know, I've, I've met a lot of people who were 
very un unaware of what happened within the new atheist ranks over several years. But basically, a lot of infighting and disagreement and controversies abounded within the atheist movement. Once they'd agreed that God didn't exist and religion was bad for you, it feels like they couldn't agree on almost anything else because they soon started to splinter into groups that wanted to pursue social justice issues. You know, um, atheism plus was, was suggested as a new way in which the movement could brand itself as not just disbelief in God, but also commitment to, you know, feminism, LGBT rights, anti-racism and so on. And others who thought that was a terrible idea and we just needed to be this free thinking oasis and so on. So the movement sort of quickly, you know, developed these, these sharp disagreements uh, to the point where, Many of the architects of the movement, you know, really fell out with each other, wouldn't share stages with each other at atheist conferences. I mean, Richard Dawkins, as many know, you know, became a somewhat controversial character anyway. He was frequently saying things on Twitter that would get him into trouble. Um, and But, you know, uh, probably the, the, the most sort of weird moment in all this was in 2021 when the American Humanist Association stripped him of his Humanist of the Year award, which they'd given to him several years earlier because of his comments on transgender and they said you know and so when you've got sort of the preeminent atheist organization in america stripping the best known atheist in the world of his humanist award it's a kind of it's a weird world you're you're living in at that point and i think this was symptomatic though that that specific issue especially symptomatic of the, the types of things that the atheist community itself was splitting over um, particularly issues around gender identity, sexuality, and that kind of thing, and, and, and what kind of place this should have in the, the sort of atheist community. So, so yeah, it was very interesting to watch from the sidelines, this kind of unravelling of the movement, to the extent that I think it part of the reason why it, it feels like a bit of a shadow of its former self now is because, you know, the, the leaders and the, the movement itself kind of fell apart in that way. You have this Matthew Arnold's famous image you use in the book about the, the sea of faith, and um the, the the tide of faith going out I mean, was was there a point do you think where the tide is turning back the other way yeah. particularly with the kind of implosion of the new atheist movement well there is this this off, oft used perhaps possibly hackneyed line in matthew arnold's poem about the melancholy long withdrawing roar of okay. the sea of faith which obviously 150 years ago he was seeing that secularism and science and technology and so on was kind of replacing almost the need for God in his generation and 150 years on that's that's only accelerated but yeah it was I, I suppose um and I use that that stanza of the poem sort of right at the beginning of the introduction of the book and it sort of forms the image on the front cover as well because there's a sort of a tide coming back in and the reason for that is that I had a, I had a conversation um a few years ago uh, that featured Douglas Murray well-known sort of secular cultural commentator and he calls himself a Christian atheist. And the reason for that is that he doesn't believe in Christianity, but he recognises that atheism doesn't provide meaning, purpose or identity. And he recognises that the Christian story has provided that for the West in, in so many ways. So he kind of identifies kind of culturally as a Christian, yeah. albeit not metaphysically. And, and he was saying, well, the funny thing is, Justin, you know, referencing that poem, he says, uh, there's no reason why the sea of faith can't come back in again after all that is the point of tides and it made me think well maybe maybe he's right maybe there is a point at which actually the the materialist story of reality the secular story will kind of run out of steam and actually the tide may turn and i was starting to notice that that might be starting to happen um especially with some of the interesting secular thinkers who had kind of replaced the new atheists who were saying very different things had a very different approach to christianity far more 
open to the value of Christianity, people like Douglas Murray himself. And he he also referenced friends of his who were kind of surprising converts to faith, you know, thinking secular peers who, who were embracing more kind of quite often quite traditional forms of Christianity, Catholicism, Eastern Orthodoxy, that sort of thing. And, and that was really where the germ for this sort of idea of the surprising rebirth of God came came because I I just feel like we're maybe witnessing the just the beginning of the turning of that tide if you like it's a it's a slightly optimistic thesis I will admit but I I do think I'm seeing signs that that it, that it could be on the turn. I mean one one of those um, very well known thinkers um, who I mean it's ambiguous what his stance on Christianity is but he's certainly open to it and engages with faith is is Jordan Peterson. You could talk a bit about him. He's someone he's he's had sold out audiences of mm. what several thousand for lectures on the book of genesis mm. say i mean was that yeah. surprising yeah. well it was you know i first sort of came into contact with him in 2017 when he was sort of a bit of an underground cult figure um partly because of his um, political sort of takes on things like transgender law and that in canada where he was a psychology professor and he's continued to be a, a somewhat controversial sort of political pundit and that sort of thing but he has been a fascinating character because of the way in which he engages ancient wisdom, scripture, and and points so much of his audience, which, which you know, a large part of which is basically millennial men and Gen Z and so on, back to the Bible, back to the Christian story, to say if you're looking for meaning and purpose, here's here's a kind of foundation that's basically given us that for centuries in the West, and and it, again, as I say, that tone, that just being open in that way was so different to his peers because I feel like the audience that was turning up for, for Dawkins and Hitchens and Harris, uh, you know, the new atheists, there was so, sort of this moment in, you know, 2016, 17, 18, when suddenly it, they seemed to flip to people like Jordan Peterson. And um, and suddenly he was the one having conversations with the new atheists like Sam Harris. You know, he had these sold out arena debates, you know. I mean, it's hard to imagine, you know, that that two people on a stage talking for two hours about meaning and philosophy and yeah. scripture could sell out the O2 arena in yeah. London. But it did twice over, yeah. you know. And 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 where was this popularity coming from? I think it's because he was scritch, scratching an itch uh, among a lot of young people and men especially as i say in his audience looked asking well is this it you know have <laughs> is this is what i'm experiencing right now the best that western society and culture can can offer and and as i say through his lectures his podcasts um his books he was actually saying no there's there's something probably better than this and he was pointing people back to the christian story so i find that kind of phenomenon fascinating because it feels like something has definitely changed in the cultural atmosphere that people are being given permission in a way to, to take Christianity seriously again at that kind of level and and he and others are the sorts of people I, I kind of feature in the book and talk about the the influence they're having. Mm. I think you talk in the book or you quote someone saying Jordan Peterson acts as a kind of gateway drug to orthodox yes. Christianity um is, is that a you, you, I, yeah I, I I I like that phrase I don't think I was the one to coin that no. but he yeah I think that's true because in a way regardless of where he stands and he is a little bit hard to pin down on his own sort of thoughts on faith and when I had him on my show a couple of years ago I asked him well do you believe in God and of course his answer was well it depends what you mean by God and yeah. it can be a little bit hard to uh, to kind of get he sort of has this Jungian sort of philosophical psychological kind of view of 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 God as some sort of being at the top of your you know structure of hierarchy or something like that but but 
either way, whatever, wherever he lands on the God question and Jesus and so on. And I think he's actually often in, in what he says, seems to be teetering on the edge of nearly being an orthodox Christian. But as I say, yeah, it has definitely opened the possibility for other people to take this seriously. So I, I, I remember reading, you know, the sort of testimony of one young man who has become a Catholic who said basically, you know, before he encountered the work of Jordan Peterson, he was just reading these these new atheist types saying, oh, you know, the Bible is just Bronze Age ignorant talk from peasants sort of thing. And and but when he listened to a couple of lectures, he suddenly was given this far deeper, more nuanced psychologically rich understanding of of what the bible is and then it completely flipped his his worldview and, and that literally did lead to him investigating it and and becoming a christian so so it, it happens i'm not saying like there's some huge wave of, of revival happening because of jordan peterson but i think it has kind of shifted the the tone of the debate uh so that people are i i, I at least encounter far less of that sort of knee-jerk new atheist type skepticism than I used to. I, I tend to find people just being a, that little bit more open to, to, to this. Um, uh, even if they haven't kind of gone all the way, they're, they're sort of, they, they don't dismiss it out of hand, you know. But a key theme I found in the book is, is the questioning of secular ideas of human rights and thinkers like Tom Holland in particular in, in Dominion, you know, arguing that, um, that this is all parasitical upon Christianity, these ideas of of human rights and dignity of people and equality, and that that seems to have been a an area um, where where the arguments taking place now. I just wonder if you could say a bit about mm. that. Um, yeah, that's sort of idea. For, for those who 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 have been living under a rock and don't know who Tom Holland is, we're not talking, of course, about the Spider Man <laughs> actor, but the the historian. Uh, he runs a fantastically popular podcast the rest is history with his co-presenter um dominic sandbrook and he wrote this yeah really interesting book a couple of years ago now dominion and the making of the western mind basically the way that christianity really gave us all our moral instincts uh in a way it was it was slightly autobiographical because tom holland himself sort of whatever faith he had as a child kind of sputtered out in his teenage years he was sort of happy kind of secular thinker into his adult life until he started researching the world of the ancient Greeks and Romans for some of his um, popular historical works. And he soon came to realise how very alien their values and, and mindset were to his own, because this was a world where slavery was just a, a given as part of the economy, where people could be effectively sexual property, um, where the lives of women and children were cheap, where, you know, it, it was a cause of triumph and spectacle when someone enslaved or killed millions of their enemies. Um, and he just realised um, this was this was completely alien to his sort of deeply held beliefs in human freedom, um, equality, dignity, compassion. And he realised that those values did not come from, well, certainly not from the, the Greeks and the Romans. They, it didn't really come from the Enlightenment or science. It came very specifically from Jesus Christ and most specifically this weird idea of a God who had become human and been died the, the the death of a slave on the cross this this was like the the weirdest kind of way of thinking about god in the ancient world you could come up with and yet this idea this idea of self-sacrificial love kind of became the foundation for this new movement and he just then just spends you know about two thousand pages working out how this just had all these ripple effects into uh through medieval times and into europe and the west 
And um, yeah, fascinating kind of tour de force, I think, really, for me, making an extremely coherent case that actually our humanist friends, our secular friends, despite, you know, be, you know their best intentions, they, they really do actually owe their morality to Christianity, not to just some process of reason and science. And he's been sort of sort of been a bit of a thorn in the side of, of many secularists ever since kind of saying this because he's a popular person on social media. He's done a lot of talks and debates and discussions on this. So I tell his story in the book. And, and again, he's one of these interesting characters where he sort of feels like he's on the verge of finding it plausible, you know, itself, Christianity. He's, he says, certainly ethically, culturally, I am a Christian, Justin. And at times I feel like I could believe the thing as well, you know, so uh, so he's he's another interesting character. Yeah. And do we see the, the terrain shifting from, you know, in the new atheism, a lot of it was about science and philosophy, but now it's, it's a lot of it's about history. It's historians like Tom Holland saying, actually, the new atheists have got their history wrong. But I think there's an example of on your show, Tom Holland's debating AC Grayling. Yeah, I mean, I, I have to confess, it's one of my favourite um, <laughs> episodes that I ever recorded. Yeah. <laughs> Bit of a guilty pleasure because um, it was just so fun to be between AC Grayling, you know, very well-known atheist philosopher, writer. He'd just written his own sort of um, magnum opus on the, the history of um, philosophy in the world. And, and it, it, in the very opening pages in the introduction of the book, he basically rails against Christianity as this terrible blight on history and the work, you know, if only the Christians hadn't sacked, you know, Alexandria and all this stuff, uh, we would have so much more of classical li uh, literature and so on to draw upon. Um, well, anyway, Tom Holland, I brought him on with Tom Holland because Tom Holland's book, Dominion, had just been published. And the first 20 or 30 minutes of that show is just Tom Holland really going <laughs> crazy, grayly got his history and just say, and just saying, show me where you know yeah. what's your evidence for this show me the sources yeah. and basically ac grayling doesn't have the sources um he's buying into basically as, as tom holland says a kind of myth around yeah. early these are the early centuries uh, perpetuated by people like gibbon and others you know the rise and fall of the roman empire who who um decline and fall who who are sort of making out that christians basically were responsible for the the dark ages and this sort of thing and people like holland and others actually that i've noticed you know again secular people have been taking some of these popular atheist myths to task and saying well look actually it's a, it's not as simple as that actually uh the christians the monks you know um of of that era were the ones preserving this stuff that you know we we have them to thank for the fact that we have so many plays and you know classical texts and so on so um so yeah it was it was fun uh to to kind of be in the middle of that but i it does feel a bit like there's been a pushback on as i say some of those popular atheist sort of myths that that have been circulating so much um and and people just saying hang on a minute let's let's do some proper history here and, and it's not quite as simple as that with this argument about history i mean i think you you argue in the book that that's that's all well and good to say that the west values are, are um derivative of, of christianity and it needs to be acknowledged but you you want to go I, th I think you want to keep the question of truth in mind and say but is mm. that enough is there a case for and you do make quite an apologetic case for the different aspects of faith and you know, philosophically and and historically yeah and even a lot of these thinkers have been asking a similar question which is we acknowledge that we've got the fruits of you know equality dignity human rights you know western liberal values from christianity but can we sustain it without the roots yeah. um i.e as we lose the christian story in the west will those continue to flourish um or not and i, I think that's a valid question because i'm not sure it is obvious that that those those values will continue to be there 
and the question is um do you, can you sort of just go on the kind of the the sort of faintly remembered story which you don't really believe anymore is that enough to sustain it or do you have to actually believe this stuff that there really is a god who came and sacrificed and that actually this thing called love is the thing that's at the center of the universe it's not just a kind of biological game of survival that really is driving everything um yeah i think that's a live question and i think it's kind of the one that sometimes gets a bit skirted around in these discussions because they tend to be held at a slightly abstract level but i, I think it's really important that the fact of whether this stuff really happened will determine whether we can make sense of life going forward and you know so so that's something i do try to lay out in the book and are you hoping with the book to both reassure christians of, of the solid foundations of their faith but also would you like this to be read by your you know, listeners or, or people you know who are who are skeptical or, or atheists because you do Absolutely. make a case Absolutely. for christianity mm, mm. yeah for sure I, i'm hoping it's got a mixed audience um both that it will encourage christians that there's still life in the church in the christian story that you know secularism and decline is not the end point of, of of all of this but yeah I do hope that that for many people who are maybe in that space that space of thinking well I'm not really convinced by the atheist fully convinced that the atheist account of reality makes sense but I'm not sure about this Christian thing either I hope it might give them pause for thought that it might help them to see that actually this story has made sense of things for many people I mean that's why I, I do include a number of stories of people not just who are sort of on the edge of faith, you know, with these questions, but who have made the, the journey over um, quite surprising converts um, like Paul Kingsnor, um, for instance, who, you know, has, has a fascinating conversion story of, you know, as a celebrated poet and author in the UK, um, well known for his sort of environmental activism as well. But the way in which he came to a point just a few years ago of becoming a Christian to his own surprise and the surprise of many of his readers, uh, but it's because I think he had tried a lot of things, you know, he'd, he'd sort of he acknowledged that there was a deep seated sense in which he felt he needed to worship something, to be thankful to something. And he'd, he'd, he'd looked for it kind of in himself through Buddhism. He'd looked for it in nature, you know, through Wicca, of all things. Um, but eventually um, he he found that it was the Christian story that that resonated, that made sense, much to his own surprise. He'd sort of given up on that I think as a teenager you know he'd sort of consigned it to just one of those things that you do in Sundays you know school assembly but but he was surprised to find that actually it, it made sense of things and I'm bumping into more and more of those stories people for whom the kind of secular material stories kind of run out of steam and they've sort of almost come to the end of their resources and they've turned around and thought well yeah here's a story that seemed to give people hope and meaning and purpose for generations and generations and to their surprise they find it's not the story they thought it was it's not this kind of worn out bigoted uh old-fashioned thing they, they realize it has this life and power and relevance to contemporary life that, that they've never kind of realized so i'm i'm quite encouraged when i read those stories as i say it's not like everyone's having this experience and the church pews are suddenly full again or anything like that but it does feel like again these are sort of telltale signs when you see people like that coming to faith of of a change in the atmosphere in some way mm -hmm. it's a story of an english literature professor who who comes to faith through reading the poetry of, of john dunn or herbert mm. or whatever and i was, I was interested yeah. in what you write about um the reality of god will only make sense when we allow our imagination intuition and emotional intelligence to inform our thinking once again and is, is that an area where where this is happening where where people are engaging with literature and arts and it's not just a coldly rational weighing up the evidence. It's also mm. something 
well, as you say, imaginative and intuitive. Yeah, the person you mentioned, I, I talk about in the book, this professor of English literature, Holly Ordway, who had this conversion. And her story is a very interesting one, again, because, again, she was raised in a non-Christian setting, sort of was a, you know, happy secular sort of agnostic atheist into her adult years until she was confronted in her studies with the beauty of Christian poetry, particularly people like Gerard Manny Hopkins, yeah. T.S. Eliot and others. And uh, she, I, I, I vividly remember when she told me about the moment she read this particular stanza from John Donne's poem, Batter My Heart, Three-Person God. And she said it felt like she touched a live wire. There was something going on there beyond just chemicals in the brain. Thing. There was something that was speaking to her from beyond. And so she's, a, you know, again, one of these highly intelligent people, um, but for whom, as you say, it was not just a purely intellectual process coming to faith. It was this sense that, that something very deep was stirring within her, the imaginative aspect of that, that was fired by this poetry and this art and literature. And, and that just kind of eventually gave way to her seeing in a kind of very C.S. Lewis type way that there was a source to that, that actually this wasn't just a kind of, you know, something that stood against in stark contrast to the reality of the world, which is really just, you know, boils down to atoms and electrons in motion, that actually uh, that was a, an insufficient account of reality. And, and you could encompass this this beauty, this meaning, this truth, this love, this uh, justice and everything else actually exists in the world and has a source you know in God and in Jesus Christ so so I think I think it's really important to engage with stories like that because um, my field of apologetics has often been a little bit too uh, left-brained uh, in the sense of you know purely analytical purely let's just look at the facts and the logic and then hopefully people will see this makes sense uh, people are rarely just left-brained people that we our right brain our imagination our sense of the holisticness of life, that tends to be the thing that actually gives us almost permission to kind of uh, take the left brain activity seriously. It's only once we've sort of seen that why we would want this to be true at an imaginative level, that then we can turn to the sort of the facts and the logic that maybe do lay out an intellectual case for why we can believe it really happened. So for me, that that is a really important thing to, to, to grab hold of. I think perhaps just finally, um, you're, you're optimistic about this this tide turning and you, you've given the reasons for your optimism here. I mean, what can churches be doing? Do, do, I mean, are they responding sufficiently to this shift in, in where people's discovery of faith is happening? I mean, or should do, do some of our, you know, programs or strategies have to change the sort of courses mm. people are offered or the preaching, um, that sort of thing? I think sometimes the church can end up being a little bit behind the curve and therefore be answering yesterday's questions. And mm. so to that extent, I'd say, you know, you know, again, in my own area of apologetics, probably that new atheist, because that new atheist thing is is largely over. There aren't that many people just looking for evidences for God or, or just kind of coming up with, you know, objections. I think the questions people are asking are, are more existential around what, how do I find meaning in life, you know, the reality is you're you're probably better off engaging with the reasons why there is a mental health epidemic at the moment among young people than simply giving them, you know, four reasons for the resurrection, because actually that's where you need to meet people. Um, we're living in a sort of meaning crisis. That's one of the big things I sort of sketch out in the book in Western culture. And the church has to be ready to, to offer the resources for that. And that's going to be about 
showing people why at root the stories they're not they're telling themselves aren't really satisfying themselves and, and pointing them back towards this this big story the christian story now that probably needs to happen in all kinds of creative interesting ways that the church hasn't always done very well or at least in recent years um so i would i would encourage the church to, to get creative in that sense about how to engage people with why they would want this to be true and pointing them back towards that story. I mean, one of, one of the things that came through loud and clear with some of these intellectuals who are kind of wistfully possibly finding their way back towards faith is that they're not very interested in going back to a church that just mimics and apes and looks a lot like the culture already. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and I noticed this work with Tom Holland, for instance, you know, as, as he sort of finds his way back to faith, he said, you know, he, he gets really depressed when the church just looks like a mouthpiece for sort of governmental health advice or something you know he he was kind of disappointed in the response of the church during covid to some extent because it just felt like it was being you know quite banal almost um he didn't need to be told to wash his hands again by the church he, he needed something that told him how to make sense of this momentous thing going on and and uh and something that brought a kind of a spiritual relief and a spiritual kind of you know so now I, i'm sure Obviously, there were lots of parts of the church that were doing that, but I appreciate his sentiment there. He's he just he wants the church, as he puts it, he wants us to keep Christianity weird, like to major on the weirdness, not to just look like culture, but to kind of show why, you know, Christianity is strange. Um, you know, it's got lots of weird beliefs about, you know, angels. He's really into angels, Tom Holland, and he, he doesn't want us to stop sort of. Uh, water it all down to some kind of very rational, you know, humanistic level. And uh, I, I can understand that because I think people are looking for something different, you know, to the sort of diet of secular materialism and everything else. And, and even the, there may be a challenge here, you know, on an ethical level that actually maybe the church needs to ask itself, oh, do we just look too much like the culture and bowing to every sort of current, you know, ethical fad that's out there? And maybe we do need to look more distinctive if people are going to take this message seriously. So, um so that that those were some interesting sort of takeaways in a way from from how the church might respond to this 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 changing tide thank you justin all the best with the book thank you so much if you want to um get hold of copies or even a signed copy uh you can do so at my website justinbriley.com thank you for listening to this week's episode of the church times podcast you can find more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to The Church Times, you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more.